Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. We're your co-hosts. I'm Dr. Carolyn Nam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. And I'm Dr. Greg Hundley, Associate Editor, Director of the Poly Heart Center at VCU Health in Richmond, Virginia. It's double feature time, Greg! We've got two totally unique and interesting papers that we'll be discussing. The first, a biomarker sub-study from the Reduce-It trial that is looking at the effects of randomized treatment with icosapen ethyl versus a mineral oil comparator on inflammatory biomarkers. Now, don't you roll your eyes at me because I'm telling you this has results that you may not expect and very very important clinical implications and implications for clinical trials. The second paper, very much up your alley, Greg, is a prospective MRI study of cerebral microbleeds during TAVR. But okay, enough now to whet your appetite. Let's now just first grab coffees and discuss the other papers in the issue, shall we? You bet, Caroline. And how about if I go first? Please. So, Carolyn, my first paper comes from a group of investigators led by Dr. Aidan Roshani from the Institute of Medicine, and it included 715,143 patients with diabetes registered in the Swedish National Diabetes Register and compared them with over 2 million match controls randomly selected from the general population to determine the role of diabetes in the development of valvular heart disease and particularly the relation with risk factor control. Huh, interesting, diabetes and valve disease. All right, what did they find, Greg? Right, Carolyn. So they found that individuals with type 1 and 2 diabetes have greater risk for stenotic lesions whereas risk for valvular regurgitation was lower in type 2 diabetes. Patients with well-controlled cardiovascular risk factors continued to display higher risk for valvular stenosis without a clear stepwise decrease in risk between various degrees of risk factor control. So, Carolyn, diabetes and a link with valvular heart disease. Wow, really interesting, Greg. Thanks. Well, the next paper is a preclinical study with really interesting clinical implications. Now, we know the human heart has limited capacity to regenerate new cardiomyocytes and that this capacity declines with age. Now, because loss of cardiomyocytes may contribute to heart failure, it is important to explore how stimulating endogenous cardiac regeneration to favorably shift the balance between loss of cardiomyocytes and birth of new cardiomyocytes occurs in the aged heart. Now, these authors, Drs. Rosenzweig from Massachusetts General Hospital and Dr. Lee from Harvard University and colleagues, previously showed that cardiomyogenesis can be activated by, guess what, exercise in the young adult mouse heart. However, whether exercise also induces cardiomyogenesis in aged hearts, however, is not yet known. So in today's paper, the authors aim to investigate the effect of exercise on generation of new cardiomyocytes in the aged heart. 
And here we're talking about 20-month-old mice who were subjected to an eight-week voluntary running protocol and age-matched sedentary animals who served as controls. Wow, Carolyn, really interesting evaluation of exercise on cardiomyogenesis. So what did they find? Endogenous cardiomyogenesis can be stimulated by exercise in aged hearts. Comparative global transcriptional analysis further revealed that exercise and age-specific changes occurred in gene programs. The regulator of calcineurin RCAN 1.4 was specifically found to be induced with exercise in aged hearts and was accompanied by reduced calcineurin activity. So what's the take-home message? Exercise-induced cardiomyogenesis may counter the increased cardiomyocyte loss and reduced cardiomyogenic capacity in elderly patients. Great, Carolyn. Well, from the mailbag, there's an exchange of letters to the editor from Professor Zoe and Weith regarding a prior letter to the editor from Professor Jin and Associates pertaining to the previously published article, Spark, a novel regulator of vascular cell function in pulmonary hypertension. And also, there's a perspective piece from Professor Mintz entitled, Catastrophic Disruptions in Clinical Trials. There's also a research letter by Dr. Kumar on von Willebrand factor is produced exclusively by endothelium, not neointima, in occlusive vascular lesions in both pulmonary hypertension and atherosclerosis. There's also this beautiful tour of cardiology news from the literature from Tracy Hampton, which ranges from a study linking COVID-19 to higher long-term cardiovascular risks, which was published in Nature Med, to uncovering alternative metabolic pathways involving cell fate transitions published in Nature, to designing an autonomous biohybrid fish from human stem cell-derived cardiac muscle cells that was published in Science. Wow, isn't that amazing, Greg? Well, let's get on now, though, to our two feature papers, shall we? You bet. Welcome, listeners, to these two feature discussions on this particular day. And our first feature today, we have with us Dr. Paul Ritker from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Bob Harrington from Stanford University in California, and also Dr. Alan Jaffe from Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to you all. And Paul, we're gonna start for you. Can you describe for us the background information that really went into the construct of your study and what was the hypothesis that you wanted to address? Sure, Greg. So first of all, my thanks to the AHA and the circulation for publishing this paper. We always wanna support the AHA and we're delighted to be here today for these podcasts. The field of omega-3 fatty acids has been a complicated one for a long time. Epidemiology suggested that fish consumption would lower cardiovascular risk, and there was a number of trials done. And my friend and colleague here at the Brigham, Deepak Bhatt, was the lead of a very big trial called Reducit, some 8,000 plus patients who received EPA alone, and they got a terrific result. I mean, a 25% reduction in their primary endpoint, and this was a New England Journal paper back in 2019 or so. But another friend of mine, Steve Nichols, ran another large trial of a combination 
of icosapentenoic acid or EPA plus docosahexaenoic acid, that's DHA, called strength. And that one showed really no benefit. And so there's been some controversy out there. In any event, when Deepak and his colleagues published their original paper, they said, you know, it's interesting because they got this big risk reduction, but it wasn't apparently due to the triglyceride lowering of the drug. And so my interest, as many people know, has largely been in inflammation biology. And so we said, well, maybe we should just do a test. Well, we said, we'll measure a number of biomarkers that we know are associated with atherosclerosis, some inflammatory, some with coagulation. And so that was the core hypothesis, was simply to look at some other markers and see what we might learn. And sometimes you learn things that you didn't expect. And I think that goes to the heart of what complicated clinical trials are all about. And I'd also say perhaps what the roles of surrogate endpoints are as compared to hard clinical endpoints and things that make this whole field kind of interesting. Right. Very nice, Paul. So you mentioned reduce it. So describe a little bit more for your study. What was the study population and what was your study design? So we were fortunate enough to work with reduce it investigators to use their biobank they had put together. Again, it's 8,000 plus patients. Uh, I think it was two thirds secondary prevention, one third primary prevention. And when they received the combination of EPA and DHA, as I said earlier, they had about a 25% reduction in the risk of their primary endpoint, which was cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, uh, coronary revascularization, and the like. What we did is we basically said, okay, since the mechanism was uncertain, why don't we go ahead and measure a series of biomarkers, things that a lot of us are interested in, homocysteine, LPLA, oxidized LDL, my own interest in inflammation, we measured IL-1 beta, we measured IL-6, we measured CRP, uh, we measured another molecule, LPPLA-2, that people have been interested in. And the hypothesis, of course, was to see what the drug did as compared to the comparator did. And the findings were interesting to us in that to simplify them, the actual icosapentethyl arm didn't do much to most of those biomarkers, very little change. But the mineral oil comparator arm had some small to modest effects on all those biomarkers, all of which went up again. Now, some of these effects are pretty small, you know, two to three percent for things like homocysteine, LPLA. Others were moderate, 10 to 20 percent increases in oxidized LDL, LPPLA2, and the inflammatory markers went up about. 25%, sometimes even a little more. So it's complicated. It's important to point out that these changes on an absolute scale are relatively small. On a percent scale, they're you know different. The reduced investigators themselves, to their credit, had earlier published that they saw some increase in LDL cholesterol as well, about 10, 11% in those who had received the mineral oil comparator. So it's not exactly what we thought we were going to find, I guess is the simplest way to express it. Very nice. And so describe for us just a little bit more, any differences in men and women? And what about age or, for example, pre-menopausal, post-menopausal women? No, the effects were quite consistent across all various subgroups. It's a very large study. There were, you know, again, 8,000 patients, lots of blood samples been drawn. And I should, again, commend the reduced investigators for allowing us to do this work with them. And again, as I point out, sometimes you find things out that weren't what you expected. And the hard part, and I was glad this got tossed over to Dr. Harrington. This is sort of figure out, well, what, what's it really mean? Because again, I, as a clinical trialist, I will say my instincts are to trust the primary endpoint of the trial. That's what they did. They, they're going to go out and lower heart attacks and strokes. And then here we are a couple of years later trying to figure out what the mechanism might be and just came across some puzzling results. Very nice. Well, next listeners, we're going to turn to 
the editor that actually processed this manuscript, Dr. Alan Jaffe. Alan, what drew you to this particular article? Well, I was asked to be a guest editor of this big by the journal because of some conflicts that were intrinsic to the editorial board. And since I have an interest in biomarkers and had for a long time, it made perfect sense for me to, to become involved. I was particularly interested in, in this particular area because I was aware that there were these two trials that had found different endpoints and that there were some controversy as to what the mechanisms might be by which these effects could occur. And so I was pleased to get involved. And I think it's a compliment to reduce it investigators and, and to Dr. Ritker that they were willing to put the data out there so that everybody could see it and we could then begin to look. So it was of interest to me. I thought it was important to the field to get really good reviewers who would be make sure that the data that would eventually be published was clear so that readers would understand it. And so that at the end, we'd be able to at least come to some conclusions that we could end up having a, an expert in clinical trials. And I thought about Bob Harrington right from the beginning might be able to comment on. Very nice. Well, Bob, he's setting you up here nicely, uh, both Paul and Alan, to really help us put these results in perspective with other studies that have been performed in this space. What are your thoughts? So first off, uh, Greg, thanks for having me. And Alan, thanks for inviting me to review and comment on the paper. You know, as both Alan and Paul have indicated that I've spent the last 30 plus years doing clinical trials of all sizes, very small, where we try to understand mechanisms and very large, where what we're trying to understand is clinical outcomes. And I've been intrigued in this field because of the inconsistency of the data across the field, where in some trials, Paul had indicated this strength, there seemed to be no effect of omega-3 fatty acids. And in uh, Reduce It, there was quite a pronounced effect of the test agent. And so when one sees discordance in a field, one tries to understand, well, why might that be? And so in the editorial, I took the position that, well, what are we trying to do in clinical trials? And in outcomes trials, we're trying to figure out what matters to patients. Do they live longer? Do they feel better? Do they avoid bad stuff happening to them, like having to undergo a revascularization procedure? So you're, you're trying to do things that are really clinically meaningful, but that doesn't say that you're also not trying to understand mechanism. And as Alan said, there have been some questions raised. And so trying to understand mechanism in the edit in trials can be quite useful, not just to understand that trial results, but to really form hypothesis for a field going forward. And so I took the approach of we learn things from different trials, and sometimes we learn things in the same trial, meaning that there's mechanistic work embedded in the large trial. You know, one of the most famous examples of this in the Gusto trial 30 years ago, we learned through the mechanistic sub-study that it was rapid reperfusion, the establishment of Timothy 3 flow that really explained the difference between TPA and streptokinase. So I was very intrigued by how we might use these data to explore the results. And I find the findings fascinating, as Paul said. It is complicated. 
but it raises a really fundamental issue in clinical trials. There's an assumption in a placebo-controlled trial that because randomization is allowing you to balance everything except for the randomized treatment groups, and therefore that comparison has causal information in it, there's an underlying assumption that's really important, and that is that the placebo is inert, that it has no biological effect of its own. Well, that assumption was violated here. The placebo is not inert in this clinical trial. Now, the investigators, I think to their credit, have said, well, this is small, probably doesn't matter. And that might be right, but it also may be wrong. And you can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. These are small effects. As Paul said, some of the effects are small, some are medium, some are large. So what explains it? And I made a point in the editorial, you could model all of this. If you get 5% of this and 10% of this and 20% of this, you can make some assumptions and say, well, the magnitude of the benefit was so great that it couldn't have been overcome by this. But that's just modeling. And there's uncertainty. So for me as a trialist and somebody who really believes in using evidence to guide practice and to guide public policy, I think there's uncertainty here. It's likely that the treatment effect is not as large as was observed, but how large is it? And how large is important? And how large might we want to consider to put into our practice guidelines? I think all of those open questions, particularly in a field where there's inconsistency across trials in terms of the observation of the outcome. So my conclusion is we need more work. We need another trial if we really want to understand this and we need to use an inert placebo to really understand what the contribution was. I'd like nothing better to see that it didn't matter, but I can't say that it doesn't matter because I don't know. Well, listeners, boy, we've got kind of some interest here in that an unexpected result. So Paul, you know, it's nice doing an interview like this, listeners, because each speaker sets up the next one. Paul, you know, Bob is saying, well, what should we do next to clarify the results here? So maybe we'll go through each of you and start with Paul. You know, just describe for us, what do you think is the next study that we need to perform? Well, Greg, it's a really interesting issue. We sought as authors to write as neutral a paper as we could possibly write and sort of do our academic job and say, here are the data. And I think we did it that way because we don't really know what the interpretation should be. On the one hand, you have a very big beneficial result, which is great for patients. And there's a prior clinical trial called Jealous, which was open label, the same drug, and also got a large benefit. And we were trying to figure out mechanism. That being said, as Bob pointed out, I think what we stumbled into is, is some level of uncertainty. And the question is, how uncertain would it be? And, and does it matter in the big picture? Alan was interesting because the journal asked us to use the word comparator rather than placebo. Now, this was designed as a placebo-controlled trial, but our paper uses the word comparator because of the possibility that, as Bob Harrington points out, it may not be totally inert. So the writing of this was quite carefully done. I think at the end of the day, my reduced colleagues, who I have great respect for and really worked terribly hard to do the main trial, understandably feel that the trial showed what it showed. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because it's the hard endpoints we should go with. On the other hand, I have sympathy idea that it never hurts to have more data. And if there could be a way to have a second trial, and I might change the population a little bit. Maybe I'd do it in true primary prevention. This was one third primary prevention. My colleague, Joanne Manson, had done her, she had a trial where they showed some potential benefit in the black populations, maybe you might oversample some minority groups. 
But just the pragmatic issues here make it tough to have a second trial. And so uncertainty is just part of what we as physicians have to learn to live with. Alan, turning to you, what do you think is a a next study to perform in this space? Well, I, I think what Paul has said is correct. It would be very hard to generate enthusiasm funding for a large trial, but it might not be nearly as difficult to begin to explore the effects of the mineral oil comparator versus the active agent versus perhaps another potential placebo and see over time what happens in primary prevention patients as a way of beginning to put some context around what these results might mean. So for example, it could turn out that the active agent actually kept the values from rising as they normally would have, and mineral oil had no effect at all. Alternatively, mineral oil may well have been a negative, had a negative effect. And I think those are the sorts of questions that could be explored reasonably in the short term without doing another multi-million dollar randomized trial. And Bob, your thoughts? Well, and and I mentioned this in the editorial, Greg, I didn't make my recommendation lightly. I know that these trials are expensive. I know these trials take a great deal of time, a great deal of energy. And I know that the reduced investigators worked enormously hard over the years to get this done. So I don't say tritely, oh, just do another trial. But if you think about the magnitude of the public health issue here, there are millions of people to who this kind of therapy might apply globally. And so shouldn't we be more certain than less certain if we want to include it, for example, in ACC AHA guidelines? I would say the answer to that is yes. And so I think of it as, okay, let's make some assumptions. Let's assume that the effect that was observed in Jealous and Reduce It is the true effect. That's ground truth. Well, there are different study designs one might think about from an analytic perspective, using Bayesian statistics as opposed to frequency statistics. One might think about an intense interim analysis plan to understand where the data are going and be able to pull in the prior data for evaluation. I would advise getting a smart group of people together who spend their lives thinking about trials in the atherosclerotic space, and the Reduce It team is pretty darn good, and say, how could we do this efficiently? I do think there's enough uncertainty that it would be ethical from an equipoise perspective to include high-risk patients in a second evaluation, because we do have uncertainty. And if we really want to nail this down, I think we could look at high-risk patients with hypertriglyceridemia and try to use some interesting design issues and some interesting analytical issues to try to reduce the sample size, a lot of attention in interim analyses to try to answer the question. I'd like, as I said, nothing better to say, oh, look, reduce it was the truth. This next trial is consistent. That'd be, to me, a terrific outcome of this. On the other hand, if you said to me, well, the effect's not 25%, it's more in the 15% range. Well, maybe then we think about how we apply it to our patients a little differently, maybe a little more cautiously. So I don't make the recommendation lightly, as I said, but I do think that there are some conversations that could be had being respectful of the effort and the expense that goes into these kind of things to try to answer the question efficiently. Very nice. Well, listeners, 
We want to thank Dr. Paul Ridker from Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dr. Bob Harrington from Stanford University, Dr. Alan Jaffe from the Mayo Clinic for bringing us the results of a sub-study of the REDUCE-IT trial that assessed a variety of serum biomarkers pertaining to systemic inflammation and highlighting uncertainty around the mechanism regarding the efficacy of icosapent ethyl that's been used previously for primary or secondary prevention of cardiovascular events. And next, listeners, we are going to move to our second feature discussion and review some data pertaining to microbleeds in the central nervous system during and after TAVR procedures. Welcome, listeners, to our second feature discussion on this August 2nd. And we are going to explore some of the world of TAVR and its potential complications. And we have with us today, Dr. Eric Von Bell from Lille, France, and also Dr. Manos Berlakas from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, gentlemen. And Eric, we'll start with you. Can you describe for us a little of the background information that you use to assemble and construct your study and describe or list for us the hypothesis that you wanted to address? Yes, uh, thanks a lot for the question. So we knew for many years that some of the complication of the TAVR procedure relate to the brain. And it has been described by many authors that there were some embolic complication and in the brain of patient undergoing TAVI. And there was no previous investigation on potential bleeding or microbleeding in this population. And on the other side, there are previous publication on, of course, initially chronic microbleeding in patients with some of, let's say, disease in the brain, but also a possibility of acute microbleeding, and especially in some uh, interesting population relating to the TAVR field, that is patients with valve disease, patients with endocarditis, or patient with assist device. Um, in this population, microbleedings, acute microbleeding have been described. And what is interesting, if you look at all these populations, these are population in which uh, the von Willebrand factor has been impacted and modified and could be one of the reasons of, of the microbleeding. And one of the similar future of the patient with aortic stenosis that undergo TAVI uh, or TAVR that are patient with indeed also this kind of von Willebrand disease. So if we put everything together, that is that previously we only looked at embolic complication in those populations and that von Willebrand disease, which is present in patients with aortic valve stenosis could promote a bleeding, in, in particular bleeding in the brain. We decided to look at the potential appearance of microbleeding in patients undergoing TAVR procedure. Very nice. And Eric, can you describe for us your study design and who was your study population? Yes, so basically the study population is a basic population of patients undergoing TAVI. Just to make sure that one of the difficulties of this study was to 
conduct and perform an MRI, a brain MRI before the procedure and as short as possible after the procedure, that is within three days, which is uh, logistically challenging and uh, also make, to make sure that we keep most of the population to undergo the uh, MRI, we had to exclude patients with a high risk of pacemaker or patient with pacemakers that could not undergo the MRI. Uh, but basically, without this, it's just a regular population. And if we indeed compare to some of the previous work I was mentioning about uh, describing the acute MRI, it was important for us to make sure or to be as sure as we could get that indeed this microbleeding, if we observe them, could be uh, related to the procedure. And it means that the, the, the MRI after the procedure should be done as short as possible. And also that an MRI, a baseline MRI should be performed because we know that in this population, you could have some microbleedings also observed before starting the procedure. So a cohort study design where MRIs are performed before and then very soon after TAVR procedures. So, Eric, what did you find? So what we observed, the first thing that we confirmed was indeed that in this population of that age, that is patient around 80 years old, when we do the baseline MRI, you find in about one out of four patients already some microbladings. But what was, and this was expected, and it is very similar to, to what is expected in this kind of population. But what was indeed more striking that when we repeated the MRI after three days, we observed another 23% of patients with a new microbladings that uh, were observed. This is indeed the most important observation. What was also important that the patient with microbladings and the location of the microbladings were not related to the cerebral emboli because indeed we could observe some cerebral emboli in this population as it is expected and there was no relation between the two so it's also an important observation suggesting that this microbleeding are not hemorrhagic transformation of cerebral emboli for instance and we also observed that the risk of microbleeding uh, or the chance to observe the microbleeding was increased when the procedure was longer and also uh, when the total duration of anticoagulation was longer. We also observed that when uh, the procedure was, uh, when we use protamine at the end of the procedure, the risk of uh, microbleeding was less. And also, uh, importantly, the status of the von Willebrand factor and Indeed, an alteration of the multimer of antibond factor was also associated with the risk of uh, microbleeding in this population. Very nice. So in this cohort of 84 individuals, average age around 80, undergoing TAVR procedure, and about 50-50 men and women, you had several factors. Prior history of bleeding, amount of heparin, absence of protamine, all indicating a higher risk of these microbleeds. So very practical information. Well, Manos, you have many papers come across your desk. What attracted you to this particular paper? And then secondly, how do we put these results really in the context of maybe other complications that can occur 
during or after TAVR procedures. Yes, thanks so much, Greg. And also congratulations, Eric, for a wonderful paper and thanks for sending it to circulation. I think with the increasing number of TAVRs, as you know, TAVR now is becoming the dominant mode for treating severe aortic stenosis, safety is of paramount importance. And even though there's been a lot of progress, we still have issues with the safety of the procedure. So understanding how we can make it safer is very important. And I think what was unique in this paper, and again, congratulations for creating this study, is that it opens a new frontier. I mean, we all know about stroke. We're all very worried about the stroke and having the patient have a permanent neurologic damage during the procedure, but there may be more to it than the classic embolic stroke. And I think this study opens actually a new frontier with the microcerebral bleeds. Now, we don't completely understand, despite the study being done, we don't understand the functional significance from this. And I think that's one of the areas that will need further research. But I think trying to understand what causes them and preventing those microbleeds would have a, a very important role in the future for making TAVR even safer than it is. Very nice. Well, Manos, you really lead us into the kind of the next question. So, Eric, what do you see as the next study to be performed in this sphere of research? Again, for me, to me, and to follow with the comment of Manos, we need to include, I would say, to solve two questions. We have to solve the question of, of what could really impact these microbleedings and what would be the impact of this microbleeding on the long-term outcome of this patient. So it means that we have to set as part of the study that we will design, potentially studies on anticoagulation, or uh, let's say, for instance, we could investigate the role of protamine. It has been suggested that protamine could be something interesting, so it could be tested as part of a randomized study, but it means that as part of such randomized study on the use of protamine, for instance, you would include a large cohort of patients with MRI after the procedure and also a long-term follow-up of the neurological complication, which indeed is the missing part of our current study. We would need to have a much larger cohort of patients to be able to reconnect the uh, neurological outcome to the MRI outcome and also to include this. So let's say for me, one of the study would be interested to perform is to conduct an, a study on the use of protamine, which is very simple, randomized, yes or no, and includes uh, brain MRI uh, in this population as a systematic investigation, which is difficult to conduct. Huh? You have to know that it's difficult to do, but it will be very important. And then to look at the long-term uh, neurological outcome. And I see, Eric, you mentioned the long term because really in the short term, so within six months, you really didn't see any changes in neurological functional outcome or quality of life. So, Manos, just coming back to you, what do you see is the next study that should be performed in this space? Yeah, I agree actually with Eric. I mean, the next step is this was an 80 patient study, right? It's a very small preliminary data. Although it opens a new system for evaluation, we're still a very small number of patients. So having a larger number of patients, I think for me, the key thing is to understand the connection. Does this actually cause neurologic symptoms? What does it mean having a microbiome? I think right now we're still confused on the study. There was not really much impact on the neurologic status of the patient. So for me, the number one thing is to understand how it impacts the patient's quality of life, the neurologic status, perhaps more sensitive studies, neurocognitive studies to understand exactly how it impacts. And then after doing that, I agree with Eric, if this is 
a bad, something really bad, maybe we can find different ways to prevent them from happening. Protamine is one of them. Sorry, the procedural time might not be a very feasible one. Or it would be interesting to see if different valves, for example, have different propensity for causing those microbleeds. Very nice. Well, listeners, we want to thank Dr. Eric Van Baal from Lille, France, and also our own associate editor, Dr. Manos Berlakas from Minneapolis, Minnesota, for bringing this very important study, highlighting that one out of four patients undergoing TAVR has cerebral microbleeds before the procedure. And then after the procedure, one in four patients develop new cerebral microbleeds. And then procedural and antithrombotic management and persistence of acquired von Willebrand factor defects were associated with the occurrence of these new cerebral microbleeds. Well, on behalf of Carolyn and myself, we want to wish you a great week, and we will catch you next week on The Run. This program is copyright of the American Heart Association 2022. The opinions expressed by speakers in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the editors or of the American Heart Association. For more, please visit ahajournals.org.